We are live. Welcome to an evening edition of Elevate Your Grind brought to you by the Cannabis Lab. Um, these episodes have been more and more fun to do and the longer that we're doing them, the, the better crop of guests that we get. Not that we haven't had, haven't exactly had a bad guest up till now, but you know, it, it's really cool when the industry starts reaching out to you and, and asking to be on the show and uh, not to call out our guest who's on today, but you know, it was really awesome to get an email from somebody at a company that I'm a very big fan of. Um, their hat sits here on the desk and reaching out and, and asking to be on our show and, and trying to address our audience. So um, my guest today has been in the cannabis industry for, a, you know, a little while. Um, she's recently joined uh, one of our companies here in Florida and she is in charge with, uh, of growing that company and also has a lot of initiatives around diversity and inclusion. And if you watch this show, you understand that I believe that this industry is a great place for that. So without any further ado, and before I give away too much of her story, please welcome Chloe Grossman, Director of Corporate Growth for TrueLeave. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Oh, no, trust me, we're, we're much more excited to have you here. Um, you know, TrueLeave is, is an awesome company here in Florida, and you guys are crushing it. I mean, I think looking at the last OMMU report, uh, you guys sell 52% of all of the cannabis in the state of Florida right now. I know. It's a privilege, honestly, and I really love being part of this company. That's, that's awesome. So I, I want to kind of start out. Um, and, and if it's okay, I want to talk about your CEO a little bit. So, you know, as everybody knows that the CEO of TrueLeave is Kim Rivers. Um, she is crushing it as a woman in a male dominated market. What's it like to work for Kim? And what's it like having a female CEO um, in an industry that is working towards acceptance, but still has that male dominated issue that a lot of industries have? Sure. So that's a really great question. Um, and one that I think comes up a lot for TrueLeave, as it's not that common to have a female CEO, especially for a publicly traded MSO. Um, so it's been really advantageous, I think, in a lot of different ways. Um, for one, it's advantageous to have a woman as our leader because she's very empathetic and really listens to what patients need. I know that she's had a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations with patients who didn't feel early on perhaps that uh, they had the right product form and things like that. So she was able to uh, speak to them from an empathic standpoint and understand that we really needed to expand our offerings to make sure that everybody has relief. Um, in addition, I think her presence has created a lot of opportunities for other women and other underrepresented groups in the company, um, which I think sets a standard for the industry as a whole. So it's been such a pleasure working for her, and uh, I'm really proud to be working at a female-led corporation. No, no, that's, that's, that's awesome. And I think what you guys are doing is absolutely incredible. But I want to kind of back up and get into your story a little bit, because I think, um, you know, if we dig into who you are and what you do a little bit, some of the things that you're doing at TrueLeave are, are going to kind of really make sense to us, right? Um, so, you know, I obviously I, I try to do my due diligence when we have folks on the show. And you've got, you know, a very eclectic um, background. 
Um, you know, and it looks to me that you got your, your start in the cannabis space doing licensing. Talk to me about, you know, what you were doing before cannabis and, and what drew you into this industry. Sure. I actually really love to tell my story because I think it's a bit of a unique one. Um, I actually really never intended to get into the cannabis business. So this is one of those things where, you know, life throws several curveballs at you and, and you end up in a place and say, hey, I love this. I'm so glad I ended up here. Um, it really all started for me growing up in Houston, Texas, which is an extremely, extremely diverse place. Um, and like a lot of, I think, white people, you don't really think about race as you're growing up. But I was in a cannabis community in Houston, and I did notice that there were some differences in the way police treated me versus other people who uh, were my friends who were black or brown. And I really didn't have a framework for understanding why that was until I got to college and I took this amazing class called Drugs and Society. The professor is actually still one of my greatest mentors and um, just someone I, I look up to immensely. But in that class, I learned about the racist underpinnings of the war on drugs and how it has been used um, effectively to oppress uh, minority communities and imprison people and, and take away their rights. So that really made me livid. Um, I was very, very passionate about reform from, from the beginning. As soon as I began to understand um, cannabis policies within that context. So when I got out of college, I immediately started working for, uh, or not working for, but interning for the Drug Policy Alliance in Colorado under Art Way who's another person I look up to immensely. And uh, with art, I was able to get involved in the Amendment 64 campaign in Colorado, um, which as we all know, is one of the very first adult use legalization campaigns um, in the United States and, and actually a quite successful one. So that was an absolute privilege. And uh, after that, I actually went up to Humboldt to do some trimming, um, which was- oh, wow. Yeah, very, very exciting experience. You know, back in 2011, it was a bit of a different atmosphere. Um, but while there, I ended up applying to graduate school from Humboldt, which is also pretty funny. Um, yeah. And so I entered a PhD program in sociology at the University of California at Davis. And there I focused my studies on drug policy and in the intersection with race and ethnic relations. Um, so I was actually looking a lot at policing and, and racially disproportionate policing. Um, and unfortunately over the course of time, I ended up feeling like I was producing knowledge for a very, very small group of people and wouldn't be able to have the impact that I really wanted to have. So I engaged again with the Drug Policy Alliance, this time in San Francisco under Amanda Ryman, another really amazing person. And um, there I was able to do some research that supported the uh, adult use legalization campaign in California um, and kind of looked at the reason why it's still important to legalize and decriminalization is not enough. Um, so I was so invigorated by that type of work and um, decided to actually leave graduate 
school after my master's degree to enter the industry, or not the industry at that time, but to enter advocacy work full time. Now, here's where life hit me with one of the curveballs. Um, I got to the very um, last stages of interviews with the uh, Students for Sensible Drug Policy, and they ultimately decided that they didn't want to hire me. And so I was thinking, oh my goodness, what am I going to do next? I just left graduate school. But Betty Aldworth was kind enough to connect me with one of her friends, Bill Lamoureux, who gave me a position at, at Denver Relief Consulting. So I ended up entering the consulting business in cannabis back in 2014, um, which was really the very, very beginning of competitive licensing. Um, so I got a lot of experience working with now what are some of the biggest cannabis companies in the world on their initial business plan, initial licensing, um, their onboarding and training manuals, operational consulting, and things of that sort. Um, and that's actually how I got introduced to leave. So we'll come back to that in a minute. But I had the opportunity to manage their license applications for Florida. Um, so anyway, uh, after DRC, I hopped over to uh, Vicente, or VS Strategies in the Council on Responsible Cannabis Regulation, um, working with Steve Fox, who's a really amazing advocate. If you guys don't know about him, look him up. He's, he's really okay. fantastic and very underrated. Um, but I worked with Steve Fox on mostly uh, policy and advocacy, so hosting international um, international delegate in Denver and showing them what a well-regulated cannabis market looks like. Um, so after doing that type of work and, and advocating for responsible policies in the cannabis industry at large, uh, I began working with Vicente Cedarberg, um, which is an affiliated law firm. And there I uh, was able to start the California practice group with the lead attorney there. And I ended up um, being their licensing and policy manager in California. So I consulted with a ton of different clients there and I think got some really good perspective on the different types of cannabis businesses. You know, in the 2014, 2015 era, the only folks who could really compete and for licenses were the people who were very well funded um, and didn't really have any traditional cannabis experience. But then in California, it was the opposite. You have all of these old school growers who are trying to orient themselves to the new market. Um, so that was a really interesting experience. Um, and then I ended up uh, being poached by a client at the time uh, and moved to LA to um, serve as managing director of a vertically integrated cannabis startup in LA. Um, and this was within the LA social equity program. Um, and so I was able to see kind of the difficulties that businesses face from a very different perspective that I really feel was invaluable. Um, ultimately, when uh, their business started going a different way that wasn't as focused on cannabis. I decided since cannabis has been my entire career that it was probably appropriate for me to figure out what I wanted to do next. So I spent some time consulting with Mexico and some other governments on um, international cannabis policies um, and then finally reached back out to Kim and said, hey, I'm on the market. Uh, 
maybe let's do something together. So she brought me on board and I moved out from LA to Tallahassee, which could not be two more different places. And oh, yeah. uh, I, I went to school in Tallahassee. I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, FSU. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Nice. Nice. That's the community here. Um, but yeah, it's a beautiful place. And now I'm uh, doing the growth work for True Leave and also leading our diversity and inclusion committee. That's absolutely incredible. And, and, and you're 100% right. It's definitely a unique story. Um, you know, it, it's awesome that your drive and, and your, you know, thing that you love most about this industry is legalizing cannabis. So this way people are treated fairly, right? So it's not something that people have as that can be used as a weapon against people of color or, or people um, that are not white for that matter, right? Um, it's really cool because you're right. That's not something I've heard before. And we've done only about 31 episodes of this podcast, but that's definitely the first time we've heard that story. And I, I think it's really cool. There's so many different questions that I can ask you about, you know, and I make the joke, right? Everybody who's a fan of Chappelle show probably remembers the, the skit where they would arrest people and say, Hey, sprinkle some crack on them. Right. Of um, you know, obviously it, it's not happening directly like that, but for the longest time, cannabis and other drugs have been used to oppress people of color um, because it was easy, right? Hey, we found this on them. They were trafficking it. They were selling it. They were using it, whatever it was, you know, it, it's very easy to do. And for you to recognize that and want to do something about it is incredible. I can only imagine pairing someone like you with that drive with Kim's desire to get medicine in everyone else's hands. Cause that drives a lot of other people it is, is makes for perfect synergy at the top of true leave. Um, a question that I have for you is really interesting is it seems like you kind of were going down the, the nonprofit real goodwill side of this industry to continue to do the work that you're doing when, you know, not getting a position kind of led you down more of a capitalistic role. And it seems that although you're in more of a capitalistic role and you would, I would imagine that you have the potential to make more money than you would if you worked for a nonprofit, you actually have the ability to do more good in the roles that you've had since than you might have in that one position. Right. Absolutely. And, and that's a really keen insight. I definitely was more so in the advocacy world. And, um, you know, as I talked about in my story, there were all of these little slips where I moved a little bit further and a little bit further and a little bit further into business. And as I did that, I think I began to see kind of what I saw when I was leaving grad school, which is sometimes there are other places where you can make as big of an impact or more than where you are currently. And um, I feel like as I learned more and more about the business side and the way that uh, diversity, inclusion, and equity are implemented, I understood that it was really important for me to align with a forward-thinking business like TrueLeave and work together on moving the industry forward the way that we, we want to see it. That's really cool because you go from a position and nothing against the advocates or the people that are working on policy, it's truly needed, but you go from a position to lobbying to get policies put in place that they should include people from diverse backgrounds and that there should be minimum hiring standards or anything along those lines or even licensing programs to just saying you know i work for a pretty big company i can just hire them myself mm -hmm. that's true that's, <laughs> that's really cool um so on that note 
you know, what are you guys doing at True Leaf to kind of ensure that you have programs around diversity and inclusion? I mean, the cannabis industry to me right now ha- probably has more diversity and inclusion in it and is, is really more of a, an industry of acceptance than anything I've seen before. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we can still take everything a step further. So, what, you know, I know that's kind of why they brought you in. What are some of the programs that you guys are, are doing? Really timely time for you to ask me about this. Um, we have been doing so much DNI work this year. We have an internal committee that's overseeing our diversity, inclusion, and equity work. Um, so this is all senior management and um, and above. And these are folks who were passionate enough about it to volunteer to actually contribute to this uh, committee. And it's been intense and a lot of time for everyone. So I so appreciate their contribution. Um, When we started this work, our first task was to get a full understanding of what True Leave has already done to date. And we were absolutely astonished by what we found. we didn't realize how many departments within the organization were doing very, very progressive things and had rolled out their own plans without really any top-down mandate. Um, And one of the things that was really heartening to me was the fact that the organization wasn't just doing diversity and inclusion in order to get good press. Um, They were doing it really because it was the right thing to do and because so many different people at so many different levels had decided that that was important to do and then they implemented it. So the first thing that we want to do is really elevate the great work that we're doing um, and make sure that people are aware of that and that we're speaking about that and in situations like this one. Um, Another thing that we want to do is obviously push the envelope and not just for ourselves, but for the industry as a whole. Um, So we have set up basically subcommittees that are looking at the initiatives that we're going to be rolling out um, under certain buckets. Um, such as, you know, workforce type diversity initiatives, which are most obvious, as well as uh, external partnerships, whether they be with nonprofits or other businesses um, that we may be able to work with in varying capacities. So we're looking at diversity along all of those different levels. Um, We also have been working hard to make sure that we have buy-in at every single level um, and that we have the resources and support needed to implement this in a meaningful way. Um, So we're looking forward right now at the same time we're trying to leverage the work we've been doing and uh, try to encourage similar the industry. All right, well, first, I want to apologize if you're hearing my daughter scream in the background or my dog bark in the background, but clearly working from home, we uh, we can't cut out all those signs. But transitioning back to, to what you were talking about, you know, it, it doesn't seem like there was a diversity or inclusion problem. And that's awesome that everything's happening so natively within the organization. You know, you're, you're public facing people. Uh, uh, Kim Rivers, obviously a female CEO, we had D Williams on the podcast who, you know, I, I, at the end of it, I thought him and I were going to be best friends and I haven't heard from him since. And Dia, I miss oh, you. No. I thought we had a great conversation there. Um, I'll tell him to call you. 
There we go. No, we, we talked so much. I thought we were going to be besties after. Um, but on that note, you know, we talked at the beginning of the show that TrueLeave is selling 52% of the cannabis in the state of Florida. You guys have 45, 46, 47 dispensaries at this point. Um, you're crushing it. Your, your stock is incredible. Do you feel that TrueLeave kind of has an obligation to kind of set the tone for how cannabis operators should be in Florida when it comes to things like diversity, inclusion, uh, community service, and just relative goodwill towards the industry? I do, for a number of different reasons. Um, well, on one level, I think that any company should be setting the bar, um, its own bar, right? Because I think a lot of really impactful diversity and inclusion work and also philanthropy comes from being truly innovative in your approach rather than just looking at what your competitors are doing or just looking at what, um, let's say, out-of-state applications are requiring you to report on. Um, so I think each company will have its own bar and they should find what that bar is. Um, I also feel like it is absolutely critical for a company like TrueLeave to, um, to take steps to try to make the cannabis industry more equitable. And this is beyond just the traditional diversity lens that looks inward at the organization. But I think it's, it is our, our privilege and our obligation to support businesses that may have been uh, or are owned by people who may have been impacted by cannabis prohibition and really have their lives ripped out from under them. Um, so I think any type of engagement in social equity programs is really um, aligning with organizations that support the entry of diverse groups into the industry is extremely important. Basically, we need to be understanding of the socio-historical um, context in which we're operating and understand that many, many people were criminalized for the very plant that we profit off of and that we have to take strides to make sure that those people have a seat at the table and also have a job or a piece of equity or some type of involvement that they feel is appropriate. Yeah, it, you know, it, it's crazy how many people there are that are behind bars that are nonviolent offenders for things like this. Um, and what's crazier to me is seeing some of the people who have gotten out and have now started to participate in the legal cannabis market and the success that they're seeing when it, it's only fair to have them there. Um, are you guys doing anything with groups like the Last Prisoner Project or, or any of those? I'm, I'm just calling that one out because it's the first one that comes to mind. Yeah, so actually one of the things we've been talking about um, as an upcoming initiative is getting involved in some expungement work. That's something that I'm very, very passionate about and actually personally just donated to the Last Prisoner Project um, after hearing Steve D'Angelo speak about the work that they're doing. Um, another really great organization is Cage Free Cannabis and we haven't decided exactly which organization we will work with on our expungement project. Um, that is definitely coming down the pipeline. Very cool. So let's kind of touch, and, and let me ask you a question. 
I don't recall seeing much law practicing or, or, or law school in your background, so I might have missed that. But do you have a law background? Because you're getting involved in expungement. You're getting involved in the application product, pro- process. Um, you know, you spent some time at Vicente Cedarburg. Do you have a law background as well? Actually, no. And this is one of the most hilarious things because I get asked this all the time. Um, I when imagine. I was working for the firm, I actually had to have a disclaimer at the bottom of my emails that said, like, I am not a lawyer. Um, and just a couple of weeks ago, somebody at TrueLeave emailed me and said, oh, I figured I would send this to the lawyers. And I had to say, hey, I'm not a lawyer. But one of the things, <laughs> uh, still not a lawyer. Um, one of the things, though, that I have really enjoyed about the cannabis world and cannabis policy in particular is there is no real legal expert on cannabis law and cannabis policy. Really, I don't think that it really requires you to be a lawyer to be able to digest laws and policies and understand, you know, from a macro perspective, how they will actually look in practice. Um, And so over the course of my career, um, well, first of all, it was very odd in general that I got really amped about regulations because nobody gets amped about regulations. So um, (laughs) so that was like an automatic nobody to really fill fill that position. Um, But I I learned over time that a lot of people who do work in the policy sphere don't have law degrees. And just like in any organization and diversity of perspectives, I think breeds more innovation Um, and more interesting perspectives that lead you to different places than where you would have been if you only asked the people who who should be at the table. Yeah, it's incredible doing what you're doing without any history in law, and I think it's kind of cool that you can do what you're doing because everything – like you said, I think we're all on an even playing field. We're all here while things are coming out. The industry didn't exist for that long, so it's not – that hard to get up to speed if you're willing to put in the time on that note you know you, you really started doing well with application writing um, and the application process you know I'm interested to learn more about that because your background stems from two vastly distinct markets Colorado and California um, Colorado from what I understand from most people say is the model that other states should be looking at California is a Some people say a dumpster fire. Some people say it's right. But the one thing that I believe, because I I looked at a company in in LA, I believe that there is social equity policies in the licensing um, procedures. Why can't I think of the word? The licensing process um, in California for the most part. Do you see that? And and we'll put Florida aside because I know there's only 22 of them. But do you see that in some of the other places where you're putting in applications or where you worked with other people putting in applications? And am I completely wrong about LA having that? No, you are 100% right. And unfortunately, LA ended up having an extremely convoluted program that um, just became very complex and very difficult for anyone to understand. I think a key problem with the LA program 
was that there was kind of a, um, a partnership matching component to it where a non-social equity business could qualify for the program by um, essentially incubating a social equity business. Now the issue there, first of all, I think that's an amazing policy and that's absolutely how it should be in my opinion. I think that businesses like truly that not qualify for social equity, you know, because of our background, should still be able to participate in the program if we're able to put the funding there and provide the resources. Um, but beyond that, you know, the big problem with LA was that they didn't actually um, pre-qualify the applicant. So there was supposed to be matching a non-social equity business, social equity business, but there was no way for either party to know who really was going to qualify for the program. Um, so I think one lesson learned there was really that these governments that are putting out these programs really need to do it in phases where they start qualifying um, the social equity business saying, okay, this prison qualifies, this one doesn't. And then um, and then going from there in terms of partnership matching um, and also you know not resorting in the way that they did to um, ultimately bring out some license in a lottery type process um, I don't know how closely you were following that but there ended up being some computer programs written where uh, people could sign in or and um, it would autofill their application much faster than other people. So it was originally first come, first serve, and then shifted over in part. So, anyway, I think people will try to find a loophole wherever they can. And that has been a common theme, I think, in social equity programs. A lot of people don't approach it with the right intentions. Um, but I think we will continue to these policies be honed and honed and honed um, and they're becoming increasingly important you know some of the big adult use legalization states that are coming down the pipeline um, the New York kinetic of the world um, those states I would be honestly shocked if they do not include um, considerations both for diversity and inclusion as well as social equity um, in the more liberal states there's often a really solid voters and also folks uh, in the legislature who support those types of programs and who are putting a strong down and saying we're not going to move forward and we're not going to vote yes on this until you include some of these include some consideration of people who've been mm, disenfranchised in a lot of ways uh, from cannabis prohibition so, so on that note, it's really interesting, you know, as truly if you guys are, you know, from a view in the state of Florida, you guys are, are big corporate because you're the biggest company here. As you're expanding to other states and you're applying for these licenses that have some of these programs in place, how does someone like truly qualify or do they qualify for those programs as much as I know that you are a woman led company? And let's address the elephant in the room. She's still white. Um, you know, is it a makeup of the company? Is it a makeup of the board? Is it the ownership? Is it the investor base? You know, how, how are these programs really diced up to make sure that the licenses that are being set aside are going to the right people? 
As you can probably imagine, just with the way that the cannabis industry is across the United States, there is so, so much different from state to state. And there are some common themes um, that we see, especially in, in the way that things like diversity are, are conceived. Um, but then there's a lot of ways that these states differ. I think in some ways they all try to put their own spin on it for better or for worse. Um, but I think in this area in particular, we haven't found perfect models, so it makes sense for states to continue tweaking it. Um, some of the programs, let's see, I'll just think through a few of them. Um, you know, Massachusetts kind of approached it in an interesting way by dividing up considerations of um, equity with economic empowerment. Um, okay. So that, that I think was particularly because it created opportunities for businesses to really do good by reinvesting in communities that were disproportionately impacted by cannabis. Um, and at the same time, it also created some advantages in licensing for other businesses um, that met certain qualifications. Um, some of them being you know, personally having a conviction for a cannabis offense or having a family member who was convicted for a cannabis offense, among other things. Um, other states have taken a different approach. You know, in the more conservative states, I don't really think we're going to see social equity programs today, but we are seeing diversity initiatives. Um, for instance, in Florida, you know, there's some required reporting and applicants do have to have a plan for how they're going to support diversity with suppliers, with employees, things like that. But one of the key differences from the, especially northeastern states and some of the west coast states is that they're not asking for a huge amount of detail. Um, there's also some market I would say these are more on the local side um, that are similar to LA, where business can commit to providing funding and uh, and other types of support. You know, maybe business mentoring and things like that, application assistance to businesses that do qualify for um, under social equity criteria. So, in in jurisdictions like that, that allow there to be an incubation type component. Um, those are the types of markets that truly can uh, can get involved in. And then, of course, you know, there's always some openness to equity partnerships in places like uh, Illinois, where partnership would be a necessity to enter the market. Got it. So for, for the simple minded folk like myself, this isn't so much the, the affirmative action that we saw from the 90s where you have to have X amount of headcount. But if we're going to give you the ability to profit off cannabis in our state, which is now legal, we want to make sure that you're going to put good back into the communities in which it was negatively affected by being illegal. Um, is that right. kind of like the gist of it? Yeah, that's kind of the gist of it. And in, in addition to um, reinvesting in the communities that were impacted, there's also investing in businesses where the owners were impacted. So I would say that's kind of the two layers. 
That, that's really good because I think that I, I would like to think that doing it that way is really going to get people to keep their word and put the money into the community to where, where it's supposed to go. Um, and, and I hope it goes that way for sure. Um, you know, on the note of, of your title here, director of corporate growth, right? It's really interesting to me and, and I, I don't want to get too far away from the diversity thing, but we've talked a lot about it and I think what you guys are doing is great, but, but on the corporate side, the corporate growth, right? you're not exactly in an industry where you can just look at a market and say, okay, we're going to go attack that market. We're going to open up shop and this is how we're going to do it. You need to go through the licensing process and essentially you need to set, you need someone to approve you to go into that market or you need to buy someone who is already approved. How does that impact your job when you guys are looking at the future of true leave outside of Florida? Well, that basically is the essence of my job, you know, to develop our strategy for entering new markets. Um, a lot of that is primarily focused on competitive licensing, so um, organic expansion. Um, but then there's also some mergers and acquisitions. Um, being that that is kind of the whole of my of my role, um, <laughs> I'll just tell you a little bit more what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. Sure. Um, so my role encompasses a lot. And I'm sure we all kind of feel that way. We wear I, I can imagine. Hats. That's why you have that the vague title, corporate <laughs> growth. It's probably like, yeah, uh, we've got a lot to give her. So just make it nice and vague so this way she doesn't question it in the job description. So. <laughs> Precisely, precisely. Um, but yeah, so my my day to day tasks are pretty broad ranging. Um, I would say I focus a lot on the strategy component. So figuring out really what is our um, strategic uh, plan for entering new markets. What are the key indicators of market value for our particular model? Um, and also implementing that in the new states that we're entering. So I tend to be a pretty proactive person. So I try to enter a new market as soon as possible before legislation has passed, sometimes even before legislation has been drafted. Um, so a lot of that on the front end involves government affairs work, um, developing relationships with all different kinds of people, but especially in the local communities that, that we enter. Um, one of our strategies is to enter majority minority communities that are kind of in an economic downturn um, as the result of industry leading, leaving, um, industry leaving those communities. Um, so for example, Gadsden County in the city of Quincy up here in um, Northwest Florida, that was the initial community that we started up in. And we found that it was really beneficial to locate in a community that had high poverty, high unemployment, and see what we could really bring to the table by hiring from those local populations and investing significant amounts of money in those communities. So that really has become a huge part of our model. So on the front end, there's a lot of searching for sites that would be really good in terms of giving us opportunities to do good. Um, beyond that, you know, we do a lot of kind of business partnership development. Um, and then, fortunately, we 
so many regs and in, in laws. <laughs> so a lot of I'm probably nerding about the law. <laughs> That's like, so you guys, so the first place that you guys opened was Quincy? Like it's like what a half hour outside of Tallahassee? Yep. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I know Quincy well. That's uh, I mean, that's de- that's definitely a great place to start your business model there. If if you know diversion, diversion, diversity and inclusion and, and investing in a community that needs it, I would imagine that Quincy was absolutely the best place for you guys to start. Absolutely, and it really was valuable for us as a company as well as for the community. And so I think that's a key thing that we look for. Um, It's just a community that is going to truly treat us as a partner because they want that investment and they want new opportunities for their people. And we have the track record to show that we can really do that in a way that doesn't benefit the corporation. or doesn't just benefit the corporation, but benefits everyone, you know, whether you look at it from a macro level or on an individual person to person level. Is, is that part of the strategy as to why you guys have 45 or so many dispensaries is that you're not just opening in the Miamis and the Fort Lauderdales and Orlando and Tampa and Jacksonville and Pensacola and all the places that it would make sense to open because you have a lot of people, but you're opening in the, Quincy's and the Bell Glades and the Gainesville's of the world. Um, Sorry, Seminole, it's a habit. Um, But, you know, is is that part of the strategy as to why you have so many locations? Um, So actually on the dispensary side, I would say that is not a primary consideration. We typically locate production facilities in these uh, downtrodden communities that could really use investment and jobs. Um, But on the dispensary side, um, I think one of the really great things about TrueLeave is that they make data-driven decisions about where to locate dispensaries um, and really look at, you know, what, how many patients will we be serving, um, what is the radius from which those patients are coming, and a number of other factors that I want to put, that's our special sauce. Um, but yeah, we, we make different decisions, um, in terms of our Very cool. And then, so let's circle back to, to what you were saying before that you like to get into markets very early, um, even before some of the legislature starts getting drawn up. So what truly did phenomenally here in Florida is you guys hit the ground running, opened up more locations than everybody else. And, and you're dominating Florida. Like we said at the top of the podcast, 52% of all the cannabis sold in Florida is sold by TrueLeave. Um, And from what I read, it was cannabis in smokable form. So there's probably even more that you guys are selling that's not getting registered there. Um, You know, to do that in a market that's mature, like Colorado or California, um, or some of the other ones that were legalized before Florida, I don't know how easy that's going to be to enter a market behind the eight ball. So is the strategy for you right now is to start kind of focusing on new markets before you backtrack into mature markets? I would say, um, hopefully without revealing too much, that those are different strategies. You know, there's a number of different market types. There's the mature markets um, that already have established players. And in those markets, you know, that's more of um, an acquisition uh, type entrant. Um, So it's very different for emerging markets where we would be looking more at competitive licensing. 
but that's really only in the emerging markets where there are limited opportunities, right? Um, but then there's also these markets like the Oklahomas of the world, which is super fascinating. I don't know if you've been looking at what's going on there, um, where there's a lot of purchasing power, um, but the opportunities are really unlimited. Um, so that type of market is not one that we have been dabbling in to date. Um, but I think could become part of the strategy in, in the short or midterm. Uh, but then, you know, obviously for the limited uh, licensing states, we may consider um, competitive licensing in those markets. Um, whether they're, they're not mature, but maybe two years in, like uh, Missouri, um, or, or if it's a brand new market or it's just coming up. Um, but we kind of have our own internal set of criteria that allow us on the end to say yes or no and decide which type of country uh, strategy it gets uh, networked through, I guess. And um, okay. then we do some internal analyses to see if it makes financial sense um, and also do some political analysis to look kind of reading the tea leaves where the market Wow, that, that, that's incredible. I can only imagine how much harder that is than running a, and we'll call it a traditional business by, by having to look so deep into each state where you want to open. But you guys did it in Florida and you did a great job and I'm excited to see what other markets you expand to. Um, there's one more thing I want to circle back to that I skipped over and I meant to address it. Did you say that you got involved in, in doing policy down in Mexico or was it New Mexico and I missed the new part? It was Mexico, yes. So, um, yeah, I assisted So you were working with, with, were you working with Vicente Fox's group at all? Vicente Fox's group, I mean, maybe indirectly, it was with the okay. senior group of advisors to the president. Very cool. Um, yeah, no, so I know, um, I know some of those guys down there. I actually got to go down to their Canada Mexico conference and it was incredible. And it was incredible, the community down there and everything else. And it was interesting to me because I got to meet a lot of young entrepreneurs that were looking to get into the cannabis space and just hearing how much more of a stigma there is around it down there with some of the families. It's incredible seeing the differences between the, our culture and their culture around cannabis. Um, and it must have been a really exciting experience. Yeah, it was actually, I would say, like the pinnacle of my career. I mean, I am so proud that I was able to be involved in that in any regard. It was truly a dream come true. Um, Mexico is going to be a really interesting one, I think, because, you know, as you said, there are some, some cultural beliefs surrounding uh, cannabis and other drugs. I think as the part of uh, narco-terrorism. Um, yeah. Some communities have been totally ravaged by um, international narcotic trade. Um, but then also I think it'll be really interesting because just like Jamaica, there's a huge tourism component uh, to the economy. So I'm interested to see what Mexico does in terms of how they handle cannabis access for tourists. Um, and I think it could be leveraged in a way that makes the country a lot of money while also drawing a lot more from them. Um, but overall, yeah, it was a wonderful experience and, and really uh, exciting. And I really enjoyed looking 
the import export laws and all that. So. Very cool. Well, if you start to have some conversations down there, give me a heads up because it'd be nice to pick up some true flower next time I'm in Cancun or Riviera Maya or any of those places. So, Hey, that's not on the books yet, but don't think I'm not going to push for it. <laughs> that's why I'm doing this podcast is this way I have insiders who can give me the information on where I should take my vacations, right? Hey, you um, have to keep <laughs> me in the know too. So this will be a mutual, a mutual thing. Absolutely. Listen, it, it sounds like you are, are really shaping the future of, of truly of where you are between what you're doing with the diversity and inclusion, you know, your, your strategy around growing the company. Um, it, it's really incredible. And you've been doing this only since September. You know, what, what else do we have to look forward from you in, in 2020? I know things kind of got derailed with Corona a little bit, but you know, Florida is starting to open back up. Things are starting to return to normal. So what kind of exciting things can we see from you this year? I think that you'll continue to see a lot of what TrueLeave does really well. We're continuing to expand throughout the state of Florida. And then also there will be a lot more communication in the coming months surrounding these exciting initiatives that we're rolling out that I think will make a lot of people happy. Um, in addition, we have some pending applications in a few different states. So you may be hearing about things like that, uh, as well as some other initiatives. So we have a ton going on. We're growing really fast. We're hiring tons of people and uh, you should definitely stay posted. Very cool. That's really exciting. So I know we're, we're kind of coming up on the hour here. And I really appreciate all of this. It's, it's been an awesome story to hear. Um, loved learning about who you are and what you're doing. And then the last question is, has Kim tried to convert you into a Florida State fan yet? She has not yet, but I'm pretty sure the next time I get a shirt, it's going to be in Seminole colors. It's only a matter of time. There's lots of college football talk, and I don't really do that, but I feel like I might need to start or I'm going to be left in the dust. <laughs> we, we definitely need some garnet and gold truly hats. I actually, I need a different one because this, this camouflage is working too well. You can barely see the logo, but uh, I support you guys on the desk. I'm a big fan. Um, thank you so much for coming today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I hope we have another time to connect in the near future. Absolutely. Uh, before I let you go, is there anything that you want to promote, the website, delivery, uh, you on LinkedIn, anything? Um, I would say, you know, if anyone is looking for a job, I know it's a very difficult time for a lot of people. We are hiring huge numbers of people. So please visit our website, check out our jobs. These are really great jobs, good paying, good benefits. And we would love to help um, offset some of the coronavirus woes for some folks by giving them um, some new hope. So please check us out and, and come work with us. Absolutely. Well, thank you again so much. And thank you everybody at home for watching another episode of Elevate Your Grind. Uh, we appreciate you joining us. Join us again live tomorrow at 5 p.m. where we will have Bob Hoban of the Hoban Law Group. It's going to be a phenomenal interview. I've known Bob for a year and, and I'm really excited to interview him. Um, We've got episodes coming out, folks, every Monday and Thursday at 4.20 p.m. If you like this interview but you didn't catch all of it, give us about two weeks or so. We'll give you a heads up. 
we're going to have Chloe on again. We'll, we'll come out with this interview again and, and we'll potentially have some Q&A on Facebook Live. Uh, we're going to have some more members-only events coming up. One of our next panels is going to be on June 11th about taking advantage of investing in the cannabis space. Uh, join us. If you guys want to get into that event, check us out, www.joincelab.com. As always, if you enjoy these, please find us on Apple, find us on Spotify, Elevate Your Grind, subscribe to the podcast. If you want to check out the videos as well, as well I can't talk today, uh, you can find us on YouTube. Just search for Elevate Your Grind. Give us a like, give us a subscribe. As always, folks, I know I learned something today. I hope you did too, and we'll see you tomorrow.